play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. Your last meal is sponsored by Heritage Distilling Company. Craft and small batch vodkas, gins, and whiskeys. Drink locally, drink responsibly. Cairo, Seattle. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. Each week, we'll explore someone's perfect last meal to find out which food they find most delicious or nostalgic or comforting or gluttonous to learn about their life and personality through food. And then we will hijack that dish and take it on a journey to explore its history and so much more. So what was your last meal before your colonoscopy? My last meal was... (laughs) That is Tom Douglas, arguably Seattle's most famous chef, restaurateur, and James Beard Award winner. The dude owns a bunch of restaurants. A thousand. No, I have uh, I have 13 full-service restaurants, and I have 24 food businesses total. And he thinks about his last meal a lot. A lot, a lot. Tom says that when he dies, he suspects the media will want to know the last thing he ate. And he doesn't want it to be something lame. Like a pathetic airport fruit cup. You know, the ones with the unripe honeydew. Why did I even put that in there? Anyway, like I said, Tom thinks about food all the time. Do you ever get tired of food? I mean, you're probably thinking it, eating it, breathing it all the time. Uh-huh. Absolutely all the time. And no, I don't get tired. Look at me. I'm, I'm like 280 pounds. Uh, if I got tired of food, I might get skinny or something like that. And that's just not in my nature. If I poked you with a pin right now, what kind of food would ooze out? There'd be duck blood. There'd be a little smoked salmon. Mm. Uh, I love a good smoked salmon eggs benedict in the morning. So hollandaise sauce. on Yeah, it'd be, I'd ooze all sorts of things. What was your first cooking job? At the Hotel DuPont in Wilmington, Delaware. My guidance counselor in high school, because I was in home ec, said, well, maybe you should think about the food and beverage industry. So she arranged an interview with, uh, or like an informational interview with the food and beverage director at the hotel. You know, in those big hotels, that's like a 400-room hotel. Those big hotels, they have dungeons, you know. I mean, there's two or three stories underground of just kitchens, 10 different food concepts in the one hotel. And so that was mind-boggling to me. And by the end of it, he said, well, are you interested in working at all? And so he offered me a cook's helper's job at a buck an hour, and I took it. Really a buck an hour? buck an hour. That was minimum wage at the time. Yeah. And do you remember one of the first things you made? My first job was to shuck 400 oysters and 400 clams for the seafood buffet, and it brought tears. I mean, I, I don't know the last time I cried over cooking, but I was shoving the knife right into my hand, and both hands were raw. And then as soon as you get done that, you have to shuck 40 pounds of scampi for the shrimp cocktail on the seafood buffet. And uh, I was a wreck. Frankly, I thought about quitting, but I didn't. I'm surprised they gave that to you as your first task because oysters are really hard to shuck. I know. That's why nobody else wants to do it. They always give it to the low man on the totem pole. And these are all these luxurious items that when you're mm-hmm. eating them, you don't think about the poor. Mm-hmm. Well, how old were you? Like 15, 16? I was uh, 16, 17. Yeah. Bleeding in the dungeon of a hotel. <laughs> you know, long before AIDS. Now, if you bleed, you have to, to go take some time off. And blood was not scary back then. It was just cocktail sauce. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Who knew? I do have a phobia about my last meal. I always think about, like, I was going in for a colonoscopy yesterday, and I, you know, there's a percentage chance that you could die at the, on the table. Really? Of course. Anytime you go under anesthesia or anything like that, yeah, you could die. And so I really thought about the night before what was going to be my last dinner before my surgical procedure. 
And I sat there at the palace kitchen, and I had all my favorite things off the menu at the palace uh, as my last supper. I mean, you sometimes you have to move on the fly. You know, I know we we're going to talk about last meals today, and sometimes you could plan it out, like for your wake or your funeral, right? Uh, but when you're like on the move, when you're going into surgery, you have to have your last meal quickly. Was that the first time that you'd had a last meal, or have you done this before? Oh, no, I've done it before. Yeah. How many last meals have you had? Um, Probably a dozen. Where really? You think that there's an opportunity you might get get killed. I was worried about in some sort of travel about my last meal. You know, I want it to be good. So what was your last meal before your colonoscopy? <laughs> my last meal was... <laughs> before Tom was roto-rootered, his words, not mine, he had a rather gluttonous last meal that started with pork belly. Uh, it wasn't properly prepared, so I had to send it back in my own restaurant. <laughs> that must but be the... the worst for those cooks to know that you sent it back. They probably oh, fear being it, fired. It totally freaks them out. Nobody fears being fired. But the other three things that I had were delicious, which was the classic. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had our chicken wings at the Palace Kitchen, but they are soaked in Tabasco and garlic and soy sauce and mustard for a day. And then they get put on the wood fire and then roasted till the meat kind of falls off the bone. And then right before you order them, we put them right back in the wood fire and get a nice crispy edge and serve them with a cilantro sour cream. Delicious. That sounds delicious. And then another dish was the little pleen that we've had on the menus for 21 years. And I learned how to make these in the town of Barbaresco in Alba, Italy, uh, stuffed with milk braised pork butt, Swiss chard, a little umethaler cheese, handmade every day by Martha. And has, you know, she's been the only one who's made the pleen in 21 years. That is a Uh, good dish. It is a good dish. And all, it's just simply served with, with butter and sage. For my last dish, I had strawberry shortcake because that is on my all-time list of favorite desserts. Fresh biscuits, a little pile of whipped cream. Awesome. So you have an all-time last meal. What is that? Oh, I mean, I'm not sure how much time we have because I don't think about it quite like just the food. Because for me, a last meal, like the all-time last meal, it represents uh, moments in my life. It represents places I've traveled, uh, dinners with family, my last moments with my dad. I was never tight with my dad, but I'll never forget at his wake, he really wanted Mogan David uh, for the wine. And he drank Mogan David. He, he didn't drink, but on, when he had spaghetti, when my mom made spaghetti, he drank this, this Mogan David, which, as you know, being a Jew, that it's a bad Concord grape, sweet, you know, like Manischewitz, right? It's, it's, a, it's terrible. When I sat with him and I asked him, you know, he was dying, and I said, uh, what should we make for your wake? And, uh, you know, what do you want? This and that. And so it came out that he wanted, we wanted spaghetti and meatballs. And he wanted Moke and David, and it was important to him. And, and I just insisted to my mother that everybody got to have a little taste of Moke and David in honor of my father. So I poured it out for all the kids and for adults, and, and there must have been 60 or 70 of us there. And, and we all did a toast to my father, and we all drank it. And I'll never forget looking around the room at the look on people's faces because most of them had never had Mattachevitz or Mogan David style wine before. And it's literally like eating melted Welch's grape jelly. It's cough syrup. And people just freaked out. <laughs> <laughs> so spaghetti and meatballs, does that make it onto your list because of that memory? No, but the Mogan David did. We can start, but we're never going to get through my list. Yeah, Let's but... narrow it down if you were held at gunpoint right now and All you right. could choose one thing. So, Oh, so one thing. I'll just start with the beginning of my list. Beautiful uh, head-on spot prawns, or sometimes they're called coon stripes. And I grew up with crab feeds, you know, bushels of crab on the East Coast out of the Chesapeake. And so that, that scenario where you're sitting around a newspaper-covered table with a bushel of crabs laid out all full of Old Spice and, and got hammers and little kids doing it and some hoarders. You mean and, Old Bay? 
Old Bay, yeah. I was thinking you said, said Old, Old Spice. Spice. Yeah, yeah, Old Bay. So you put cologne on the spot yeah, prawns exactly. first. In your will, you have what people will eat at your funeral, correct? I At my wake. At your wake. At my wake, you know, after the funeral, uh, which I don't think I'm going to have because I'm getting, I'm either going to get, if I can legally get dumped to the crabs, I want to be wrapped in gauze and be dumped off the side of a ship down to the crabs that I so love to eat. I'm going to pay pay it forward, pay it back, whatever I've done. Are uh, you going to have the mafia do that? Somebody's got to do it because I think it's illegal. But uh, if I can't get away with that, I'm going to be cremated, which I've, um, you know, I've cooked in a lot of wood-fired ovens. So it's just like ash is my thing. Uh, <laughs> Memories. Uh, exactly. <laughs> if we have some sort of service, uh, we are all going to Chinatown. That's been some of my favorite times with my nieces and nephews since I've lived in Seattle 38 years now. I'll go down to Chinatown and you sit around the big table of 10 with the spinner center and you just order the, you know, from the live tank, crabs, lobsters, spot prawns if they have them, whole tilapia fry, you know, think rockfish, lots of Hong Kong noodles and gai lan, which is my favorite a vegetable to have in Chinatown. Uh, you know, things like that are to me a big pile of roasted Chinese barbecue duck. Uh, you know, that, that's my idea of, of having a party. So how do you like the crabs prepared when you go out to a Chinese restaurant? Take the live crab, they bring it to you in a bucket, make sure it was something that you wanted, the size that you wanted, and then they take it to the kitchen, they whack it into chunks. And, you know, there's two kinds of the way that the Chinese serve that crab. They'll serve it like us Caucasians like it, which is take all the mustard out and just kind of clean it up. Then they'll dredge it in cornstarch, deep fry it, and then they have this super hot 800, 900, 1,000 degree wok, red hot, and they'll dump that deep fried crab into there, add jalapenos, garlic. Now, if you want to take that into a, a black bean crab or a garlic sauce crab with scallions, uh, that you just add the sauce, and, but you always kind of deep fry it first. If you do it the classic Chinese way, you leave the guts in it and you stir fry it and all that protein coagulates and you'll see a very muddy sauce with lots of wispy proteins and, and it, it kind of turns some people off. But I, I like the more the deep fry it and then the hot wok, salt and pepper style. Now, I know it's only episode one and the show is about last meals, but we're going to focus on Tom's wake menu, Chinese restaurant crab fresh from the tank, the meal he has chosen for his family and friends to eat. Because who else has crab in their will? All right, so it's cocktail time, and uh, we're making cocktails today with Your Last Meal's brand new sponsor, Heritage Distilling Company. We're here with the owner, Justin Stiefel. You have a very special uh, football cocktail that you make. We do, using our batch number 12 vodka uh, this year. It's appropriate. We call it a 49ers suck. Subtle. Yes, and that essentially is extra sour lemonade with a weak pour of vodka. Brutal. But appropriate. <laughs> but appropriate, unless you're a 49ers fan. Still appropriate because you feel the pain. So it's of kind of like a season. cathartic drink. It is. Yeah. <laughs> Do you recommend that uh, Seahawks fans drink this drink? Is it is it palatable? Uh, it makes it go down easy. The so, vodka itself, though, is very clean. It's a hundred percent corn. Not oily at all. It's got a slight sweetness to it, and you can really mix it in any cocktail. It's it's really an amazing local vodka. Hello. How are you? I'm fine. Is it noisy where I am? It's real noisy. I skyped with Jennifer Aitley. 
author of one of my favorite books, The Fortune okay. Cookie Chronicles. Jennifer traveled around the world to understand the origins of Chinese food in America, and she unlocked some of life's greatest mysteries, such as why are characters on TV shows always eating out of Chinese takeout containers? In real life, people do not eat out of those containers. In movies and television shows, they disproportionately do. And one of the reasons is because of this idea of continuity in TV. Like, if you're going to do a shot over and over again, if you've eaten pizza, you have to replace the pizza every single time. But when it's a white takeout box, you can't tell what was in it. So you can shoot it over and over again without being disruptive. It's because of this like little trick in filming in Hollywood that people assume that we're always you know, out of takeout boxes. Today, Jennifer is not traveling around the world. She is at home in New York. I'm in um, Gumbo. You're in, in where? Brooklyn. Oh, Dumbo. I, I thought you said gumbo. All right, let's talk about crab. Chinese people believe that the fresher something is, like the fact that it was alive at one point, like maybe when you walked into the restaurant, makes it more yummy, where I think Americans don't have that sense as much. And actually, Americans in general don't like to be reminded that the food they ate ever lived or walked or swam or flew. She says Chinese people want to be involved with their food. They want to choose their own live crab and they want to rip it into pieces. So Chinese people really like to work for their food. <laughs> like there's some kind of thing with like crabs and like snails and like digging and breaking and cracking. And like it's somehow like about the journey and the effort it takes in order for you to enjoy whereas americans are like not like that so so i think it's really interesting with seafood um you know part of it is the fact the mere fact you have the struggle to get that little tidbit of crab that makes it i think much more valuable whereas like crab cakes would like not be interesting to like chinese people but i wanted to know specifically about the crab dish that tom douglas loves so much the deep fried whole crab that's been smothered in garlic and chilies or black bean sauce and lucky for us, Taylor Huang has answers. Taylor owns the Pho Ciclo Cafes in Seattle, and she's the executive director of the nonprofit Ethnic Business Coalition, which aims to support minority businesses, many of them Chinese restaurants. Taylor says the crab Tom once served at his wake originated in Hong Kong. They had a very, very famous uh, dish there. It's called the Typhoon Shelter Crab. Typhoon Shelter is a collection of all of the Saipan boats that lived in and around the causeway of Hong Kong, and that was where they would take cover from the typhoons. And so it was a whole village of boat people that lived there, and they had their own tradition, they had their own wedding ceremonies, their own language. Most of them lived off of the water, and they were fishermen. At night, these boats would band together and have dinner on these boats. And so that was where the crab that we now know of today in the Chinese restaurant came from. It's called the Typhoon Shelter Crab. And so these boats don't have a lot of fresh ingredients on them. So they would fry up the crabs really quick in their wok with lots of oil and then fry up tons of garlic and chili and then heaping those on top of the crab and that would be served. They use also a lot of fermented beans on these uh, boats. Were these big boats or like little fishing no. boats? These are um, tiny little boats that dates back to the 1800 when um, a lot of family lived on the water. Since 1990, the um, government of Hong Kong have um, disbanded a lot of these villages because of sanitary purposes. And also they wanted the children of the boat people to get an education. So a lot of them have moved on into land. People have taken a lot of the food from the boat and transferred it inland. And then from there, 
onwards onto other culture and country. So Tom's favorite crab dish eventually landed in America. None of us know exactly when, but Chinese people started immigrating to the U.S. in the mid-1800s to help build the railroad and to work in factories. But Americans didn't eat Chinese food, right? They thought these strangers ate rats, they ate cats, or dogs. So very early on, actually, you see a lot of American media cover like the strange eating habits of these people who eat rice with sticks and are like very suspicious. Around the 1920s, Americans were suspicious of more than just the food Chinese people were eating. They were angry that these immigrants were taking their jobs. And so there was a big riot all over the U.S. And so part of the government's response to that was to pass immigration laws, banning a lot of Chinese citizens and also laborers from immigrating to the U.S. But there was a loophole in that immigration law that says that if you have a a merchant license, they allow restaurants to be part of that merchant visa. And so a lot of these folks would band together to create these big chop suey houses in order to immigrate to the U.S. So between 1910 to about 1930, you saw a huge influx of Chinese restaurants being opened up because that was the only loophole that they can bring people and their family from China to the U.S. So they're like, you better learn how to cook because we have to open a restaurant. (laughs) That's all we can do here. Exactly. But when all of these Chinese restaurants opened, Americans didn't want to eat the chicken feet or the pork blood with sticky rice that they ate at home. So the cooks adjusted to American tastes. Basically, they fried everything and then smothered it in sticky sweet sauces. General Tso's chicken is the most popular Chinese-American dish. I mean, I think we calculated out that by itself, at least a billion dollars of General Tso's chicken is served in the United States every year. What is there not to like is basically sweet fried and chicken, all things that Americans love. And so the key thing, though, is that there is really not General Tso's chicken in China. It's cocktail time. And today we're making cocktails with Your Last Meal's brand new sponsor, Heritage Distilling Company. We're here with the owner, Justin Stiefel. So you have a very special cocktail for football season. It is called... 49ers Suck. The 49ers Suck. This drink is made up of... First off, we uh, put some ice cubes in the shaker, right? And uh, we're going to take our lemonade and, and then one shot of vodka. And we like to use a really good shaker. And the better the ice the better the flavor that comes out. What do you mean the better the ice? How do you get good ice? It's gone through a filter, hopefully, Oh. before it goes into the freezer, and then it doesn't have freezer burn, so it's like fresh ice. So water, like, off the tail of a mermaid would be ideal? Uh, be a little fishy, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right, let's shake it up. Okay, so, and then the harder and more vigorous you shake it, and the longer you shake it, the smaller the chunks of ice will start to come out. When you strain it, then you get these little bitty floats of uh, little floaters of ice in there. I do like a crispy drink, like crushed ice from the gas station. That's mm-hmm. good. Oh, yeah. That reminds me of how bad the 49er season was this year. <laughs> it Perfect. tastes really good. You can go to heritagedistilling.com to find the recipe for the 49er suck cocktail. Uh, and that is where you can order any of the spirits you're hearing today. Go to heritagedistilling.com. When Tom Douglas was 17 years old, he painstakingly shucked hundreds of oysters and clams until his hands bled. But out in the hotel's luxe dining room, unknowing diners sat around tables topped with fine linens, sipping wine and slurping down oysters faster than Tom could shuck them. And none of the diners probably gave a single thought to where those oysters came from. Well, the same is probably true with crab. I myself have actually never thought about how a crab made its way onto my plate. I'm too busy wearing the bib, cracking the crab, picking out its sweet meat, and dipping it into butter. 
But Captain Keith Colburn, a veteran crab fisherman who stars on the reality TV show Deadliest Catch, says being a crab fisherman was proclaimed the most dangerous job in America for many years. You're in 30-foot seas, the boat's pitching and rolling, there's waves crashing over the side. Um, you're, you're swinging these 800-pound, basically, wrecking balls around that are the crab pots and uh, trying to put them in place and then throw them over the side with a bunch of line that's getting sloshed and washed around that could tangle up and grab a guy and yank him over the side at any moment. Um, other than that, it's pretty safe. Oh, yeah, it's totally safe. I think my mom will let me go out next season. And with a little help from his boat, the wizard. We catch king crab, barret eye, snow crab, tanner crab, and red king crab. And, you know, it's the biggest crab fishery on the planet, and it's the best crab on the planet. Captain Keith and his crew fish in the Bering Sea, and they bring in more crab than Tom Douglas could ever crack. Oh, on a good day fishing snow crab, a really good day, we can put 100,000 pounds on the boat. Good thing about the wizards, we hold so much crab that, you know, most boats only hold maybe 100, 150, 200,000 pounds of crab because we hold close to 400,000 pounds. While they're driving back and forth from town to get the crab off, we're still fishing. So that's one of the reasons why the Wizard's always been, you know, one of the best boats in the fleet is we've got a huge advantage because it's a huge boat. Right now in Seattle, crab is going for about 20 bucks a pound. A huge testament into how much work went from getting it from the Bering Sea into your fishmonger's ice line display. Now, I'm not sure how many friends and family members Tom Douglas plans to have at his wake slash Chinese crab feed, but it could get pretty expensive. In your will, does that mean that you are paying for this? The money is set aside. For you, why is it important to choose what people eat at your wake. Is that because you want to treat them one more time? Or, you know, some might say, well, that's kind of controlling, telling it's people the what they're going to eat. It's the last bit of control you have. And screw them. If they don't want to come, don't come. You know, it's like, free crap. This is my What's wake. I pay you? for it. <laughs> <laughs> and that, my friends, is Seattle chef Tom Douglas's last meal. Tom is a James Beard Award winning restaurateur with many, many restaurants, including the Palace Kitchen and Dahlia Lounge. We also heard from author Jennifer A. Lee, Seattle restaurateur Taylor Huang, and Deadliest Catch crab fisherman Captain Keith. Original music by Prom Queen. And as you may have noticed, this is a brand new podcast, so I'd be so grateful if you went to iTunes and left us a review. I'm Rachel Bell, and until next time, this is your last meal. If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Paulsbow, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest, and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P, or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound.